Please find the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew. There are two things you need to remember about the Beatitudes. One is that they, they, they cause a chain reaction so that the first Beatitude creates the second and the second, the third, and so on. And the second thing you need to remember about the Beatitudes is that the Sermon on the Mount illustrates what the Beatitudes teach. So the Beatitudes teach the principle and the Sermon on the Mount, the rest of that Sermon on the Mount just pictures what the Beatitudes have taught. And so, blessed are they, are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, is illustrated in chapter 6, verse 19. So you turn to that, please. Chapter 6, verse 19, verses 19 through 34. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. And yet our Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single cubit to his stature, to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles, the pagans eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen to that. God always meets man at the point of man's desire. Now sometimes people will say to me, you know, I just don't feel as close to God as I used to. I, I'm just not as close to the Lord as I'd like to be. The fact is, you're as close to the Lord as you want to be. Because you can be as close to God as you want to be close to God. You can have all of God that you want. 
Now that cannot be said of anything else. As a matter of fact, you may not have all the money that you want. Most of the time, the more money we get, the more we want. So that you will never take your fill and you will never be completely satisfied with anything you hunger and thirst for except for God. The truth is that it is only when a man hungers for God and His righteousness that he'll ever be satisfied and that he will ever experience fulfillment in life. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, God has allowed us to know the secret of His plan and it is this. He purposed a long time ago in His sovereign will that all history should be consummated in Christ and that everything that exists in heaven or earth should find its fulfillment in Him. And what he's saying is this, that only in Jesus Christ will a person ever find fullness and fulfillment. He only, he only takes us along as far as we want to go in the, in the Christian life. Now you may say this morning, well I, you know, I'm going to blame circumstances or situations or conditions. I blame certain people for the fact that I'm not growing as a Christian or I'm not a spiritual person. The fact is that if you're not a spiritual man or a spiritual woman, it's because you just don't want to be. And that's why the psalmist said, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And I suppose that the implication of this is that, that the most hopeless situation a man can ever find himself is where he has an awareness of no need. The most hopeless situation that a man can ever get in is where he has no appetite for God. God says, I despise that condition. You remember those letters to the seven churches and the one we like to preach on? Preachers really get worked up over this one. I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're neither, I'll spew you out of my mouth. You know why Jesus said that? Well, we neglect the next verse, and that explains why He said that. Either get in or get out. The reason He said that was because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The most helpless condition a man in which a man ever finds himself is when he isn't aware of the fact of how bankrupt he is. And so God spends His time with a Christian trying to bring him to the place where he understands his need for God. He, 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 he arranges and orchestrates those experiences in life that just takes away those things he feeds upon until a man cries out for God. And that's why he led his people around in the wilderness for 40 years. And he says in the 8th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, I led you around in the wilderness so that you could understand how bad you need me. I want you to be sure you catch the order of this beatitude. It's in the perfect order. Poor in spirit means that a man understands his bankruptcy before God. He has nothing within himself to present him to God. When he realizes that, he mourns in his spirit. He has godly sorrow for that. And that brings, that produces humility. He's humble, he's broken. And the result of that is that, he, uh, that it arouses in him a desire for that bankruptcy to be filled. 
And what needs to happen in this place this morning is that each of us who come in here and drift in on Sunday morning, and you know, because it's the thing to do, is to come to grips with the fact that most of us are not what we ought to be or where we ought to be, and that that becomes so apparent to us that it causes us to pant after God and thirst and hunger for righteousness. Now, I need to give you a definition of righteousness. Righteousness means, indeed, it means right, but it means more than right. It means to be completely right. I mean, not just a little bit right, but totally right. It means to be right with God. It means to be perfect as God is perfect. And it means to be like Jesus, exactly like Him. Now notice, he doesn't say, blessed is the man who achieves perfection, for he shall be filled. But blessed is the man whose basic hunger in life is to be exactly like Jesus. And he's saying, blessed is the man who is absolutely restless until he achieves perfection. It's what drove the Apostle Paul. He said, I've not attained perfection, but it is the driving motivation of my life. That's the goal that I strive to attain. Now normally, um, whenever the, new, the Greek has a construction that says, hunger for bread, it, it uses an, an unusual construction. Now you need to get this to understand this beatitude. It uses a construction that's really awkward in the English. It's like this. He hungers for of bread, O-F. Or he thirsts for of water. And the construction is there to help us see that a man hungers not for the whole loaf, he just hungers for a part of it. And he didn't thirst for the whole well of water, he just thirsts for a drink from it. But when Jesus comes to this beatitude, he breaks with tradition and he cuts across the grain and he puts this beatitude like this, blessed is the man who hungers for the whole loaf and thirsts for the whole well and he'll be satisfied with nothing less than being exactly like Jesus. That's the problem with many of us, you see. We want to be righteous, but we're not going to go overboard on it. I mean, nobody wants to look like a fanatic. I heard somebody say one time, he said, I'd a whole lot rather have a fanatic than a dead Christian. You know, somebody, a dead person, a dead church. He said, it's pretty easy to cool off a fanatic. It's pretty hard to warm up a dead body. I, you know, it wouldn't hurt for us to have a, you know, I want to be right, but I don't want to be totally right and look odd, you know. And what most of us want is just enough righteousness to be acceptable and just enough goodness to be presentable. We'd like to have a little taste of righteousness, but I mean a little snack will be enough. But Jesus is not pronouncing blessing upon a little bit of righteousness. In fact, what He's saying is this, Blessed is the man whose passion in life is to be exactly like Jesus and will settle for nothing less. And there are some folks, you know, who, who feel like that, that a little righteousness here excuses none over here. I know some folks who, be, who think that because they witness on Monday excuses their bad temper on, on Tuesday. And there are some folks who believe that if you go to church and pay your tithe on Sunday, that excuses uh, unholiness on Monday. 
And what Jesus is saying is this, blessed is the man who in every area of his life is totally unhappy and unsatisfied until he has arrived at perfection. I wonder today how your desire to be like Jesus is. Now the question is, what is, what does a man look like when he hungers and thirsts after righteousness? Now I mean, what does that look like? And that's what the Sermon on the Mount does. It, it pictures what a man looks like who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. And there are three characteristics. First of all, he says, that a person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness will be perfectly right in his affection. Read verse 19 with me again. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth. That word um, treasures there is a word that means, comes from literally from a root that means to put, to put. And, and what he's saying is don't put your affection, your energies, your emphasis of life on treasures that are on the earth. I mean, some folks have their affection in the wrong place, he's saying. And, and it's a foolish thing to do for two reasons. First, the w- first reason is that we're not going to be here that long. We're not going to be on this earth that long. The psalmist said that we, uh, God knows our frame, that we are dust. One breath, one puff from death's breath, and we're gone. We're history. Buttrick used to say that a wise businessman, when his banker asked him about security, would say, Security, brother, while we sit in this bank, death watches us over the windowsill. Now in Jesus' day, a symbol, a sign of wealth was beautiful clothes. You remember when you were in primary Sunday school and they bring out those pictures of those those Old and New Testament characters and they'd be dressed up, you know, and Mary had this purple scarf around her, you know, and they just have beautiful clothes. You can forget that. Rich, only the rich wore clothes like that. Mary wore burlap. It was a symbol of wealth. Fine clothes. And, and what Jesus is saying is that here is a man who puts all of his affection on clothes and one day he looks and the moths have eaten him up. And a little word rust there is not what that brown stuff you see on, the, on your knife blade that word means to, to devour as a rodent would devour or a mouse. And another symbol of wealth was to store up grain in these gigantic silos. And that's why that man said, I'll just tear down barns and build greater ones because the symbol of wealth in that day was to fill the silo full of grain. And so he fills the silo full of grain. One day he goes to the grain and the, and the rodents have eaten it up. Have you ever noticed how vulnerable those things we love so much are to the little things of life. I mean, it didn't take a real great tragedy or disaster to take away everything you love. And he said, thieves break in and steal it. I mean, you can lock it under lock and key and they come in through the walls while you sleep at night. And then he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It seems strange. You'd think that your treasure would follow your heart. No, your heart follows your treasure. And to the Jew, the word heart there meant his mind and will and emotion. And what he's saying is this, that your treasure doesn't become a slave to your heart. Your heart becomes a slave to your treasure. And what Jesus is concerned about is not so much what we do with our treasure. He's concerned about what our treasure does to us. 
A man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness is a man who is right in his affections. Secondly, he's a man who is right in his allegiances. And so he says there in verse 24, no man can serve two masters. Now he doesn't say that we don't serve a master. As a matter of fact, there is no such thing as freedom. The only freedom that a man ever has is the freedom to choose who he's going to serve. No man can serve two masters. He said, because God, man cannot serve God and mammon. Now normally people translate that word mammon as money. It means much more than that. It means worldly things. And it even refers to the love of, of, of acceptance and popularity and all that kind of stuff. It's where a person places his trust. Where are you placing your trust? What are you trusting in to make life worth living for you? That's what he's asking. For you can't live without faith. Every man trusts something and every man is a slave to something. Now you might want to say, well, I'll just make the best of both worlds. It's a physical and spiritual impossibility. You can't do that. And that's why some of you are so frustrated in your Christian life. Let me tell you something. I talk to people all the time who are absolutely frustrated and disappointed in their Christian life. I suppose there's hardly a week goes by that I don't talk to somebody who says, it just wasn't what I thought it would be. I'm not, what, I'm not happy with my Christian life. It's just not... And we hear all these testimonies from people about triumphant living, and we know that doesn't communicate with what we're experiencing, and we're totally frustrated. Has it ever occurred to you that the reason why is because you've never turned loose of the things you can't possess in the first place? Well, he said, no man can serve God and mammon, for he'll either hold to one, he'll hold to one and despise the other. I want you to get the picture there in the Greek language. What he's saying is that the tighter you grip, get a grip on the world, the tighter it gets a grip on you. And the tighter that grip is over here, the looser the grip is over here. So that the tighter this grip the more we undervalue and underestimate over here. I've noticed that. That the tighter a person gets, the tighter a person's grip is on God and His righteousness, the less he values the world. You ever notice that? And the converse is true. Have you ever seen, have you noticed somebody who, they once just started out serving the Lord and, and, and all of a sudden it just, they just begin to kind of drift away and the things of God became less and less and less important because the hard hold, the, the stronger the grip is on one, the looser the grip is on the other. Now you might, you might be saying to yourself, well I don't think I'm trying to make the best of both worlds. Well I, I, can, I can tell you there's a test in this text so you can see if you do. It's verse 32. Verse 32 says, well, let's, let's, let's make verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life or what you shall eat or drink. This is the test of whether or not, you, you know, you're trying to make the best of both worlds. Are you worried? Are you anxious about worldly things? And then he makes a devastating statement in verse 32. And the devastating statement is this, that the characteristic mark of a pagan is 
that he's anxious about what he wears and where he lives and what he eats. There's some of us who are Christian on Sunday and pagan on Monday. We come to church on Sunday and we talk about trusting the Lord and loving the Lord. We sing all these wonderful hymns and then we tear ourselves to pieces with anxiety about those things of the world rest of the week. There's one third characteristic, final characteristic. A person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness will be right in his ambition. And so he gives us that verse that we often quote, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. He's saying if you're going to be anxious about anything, be anxious about this, the kingdom of God. If you're going to be ambitious about something, be ambitious about this, the kingdom of God. And he's not talking about heaven. He's not saying try your best and work your hardest to get to heaven. He's saying the kingdom of God never refers to heaven in this sense. It refers to the rule of God in the heart and life. And what he's saying is this, that the ambition of every person's life if he's going to be blessed of God, must be that he, comes to the, that he can come to the place where he places at, his, at God's disposal everything that he is and has. And so Jesus is saying this, let this be the driving motivation, the driving ambition of your life, that you can reach the place where God absolutely, totally rules your life. Now he's not saying to disregard ambition. Somebody said one time, a man's ego and his ambition are, the, are, are, are alike. You, neither one is any good until you break it. I, I don't believe that. And I don't think Jesus ever suggested that we were not supposed to be ambitious. In fact, he constantly said, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. What he's saying is, just be sure in your ambition, just be sure as you strive for greatness that it's true greatness you seek. A hundred years ago, a French philosopher said of America, I've never seen such ambitious people with such low ambitions. Jesus is saying, let this be the driving ambition of your life that you might be ruled and mastered by Christ. For me to live is Christ, the Apostle Paul said. And he makes a staggering promise if that's the case. And the promise is, all these things will be added unto you. Now what things is he talking about? Well, not everything we want not everything we want, but everything we need. And we must not misunderstand the promise. He's not saying believe in God and stop working, for who can love God and not love work? And who can love God and not have a baptized ambition? And who can love God and not think about the future or prepare for His family? He's saying this, watch this. If you dare put God first in your life, if you dare do it. If you dare put God first in your life, 
these things have a better chance of falling into place like what you wear, what you eat, what you have. But we must seek God for the right reasons. I know some people in bad health who seek God not because they want God, they want good health. And there are some people who have financial difficulty who flee to God not because they want God, they just want financial security. And it seems to me that God is worthy of our praise and worthy of our lives just because of who He is. And so Jesus is saying, when you want God just because He's God, more than you want anything, you'll be filled with God. There's no fable that said that a man went to Buddha one time to, to ask him how one obtained salvation. And Buddha said, come with me. And they, they looked, he said, look in that pond, look at your reflection in the pond. And the man knelt down to see his reflection in the pond. He thought that Buddha was going to teach him that He's to see himself as he is, and that way be, find salvation. As he knelt down to look at his reflection in the pond, the fable goes that Buddha got him by the nap of the neck and thrust his face under the water and held it there. And the man could get his breath. Just before he drowned, Buddha let him up, held him by the nap of the neck and said, When you want God, when you want salvation, as badly as you wanted air, you'll get salvation. Let me paraphrase that a, bit, a little bit. When you want God as much as you want things, you'll get all of God you can handle. And the key and the secret is that we lay aside our ambition for anything but Him. And the poet put it like this, I sought Him in the still far place where flowers blow in sun-bathed soil. And I found Him where a thousand life streams flow through sin and toil. I listened for His step in the still deep cloistered shrine of secret thought. I heard it o'er the world's tumult, the voice divine, still I sought. I thought far off alone, His presence by my side, His joy to gain. I felt His touch upon my life's pulse beside a bed of pain. So he who seeks the Master, following his own way of gain or loss, listen to it, he who seeks the Master, following his own way of gain or loss, will find him when life's dreams are laid aside and there a cross. That means that if you're willing to lay aside life dreams, 
you'll find God here today. And when you find Him here today, you'll find the only thing in life that'll ever fill you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in the quiet of this invitation moment, you will call our hearts to Thee. So that like the man in search of treasure, when he found You, sold everything he had to have it. That man will discover that the treasure he seeks in life that which he desires to make life livable is found knowing you and loving you in serving you. Help us to see that this hunger we have felt is just the fact that you have been arranging those things in our life so that we'll desire you, cry out for you, Lord, I pray for this invitation that there indeed might be those who, having been touched by the Holy Spirit, would make public their decision. For I ask in Jesus' name. There are three invitations. If you want the Lord today to save you, you can have Him. If you're willing to repent, that means to turn from that to there. Lay aside everything you've trusted in and upon and trust Him alone. Maybe you need to come this morning and place your life in the church. Serve with God's people here. Or maybe you could say with some of us, my heart has gotten cold. My hunger and thirst has been for something else. And I'm not happy. I want Him, His righteousness. Would you come? The first word of our invitation as we stand to invite you to come.